So we've discovered something of why Darwin still matters. We've discovered something of London as it was in Darwin's time. And now we need to get stuck into Darwin himself. Um, I'm delighted to say our next speaker is uh, perfectly suited to tell us about Darwin's work. John Van Wye is a historian of science at the University of Cambridge and the founder and the director of Darwin Online, a fantastic resource. If you haven't come across it, then I can highly recommend it. In this year, John's publishing two major contributions to Darwin scholarship with Cambridge University Press. Uh, one, Darwin, Charles Darwin's Shorter Publications, 1829 to 1883. And secondly, Charles Darwin's Notebooks from the Voyage of the Beagle. Uh, he's recently published Darwin, um, a lavishly illustrated overview of Darwin's life and work, and another book, Darwin in Cambridge. So for those of you who want to know about Darwin somewhere else, Darwin in Cambridge gives an insight into his relationship there. And I'm very pleased to say that John's going to tell us this morning about what was Darwin doing in London. John. Thank you. Thanks very much. And uh, it's a great pleasure to be here today. Um, I was a bit worried about uh, turning up today because I saw that the event was advertised on the website as not suitable for children. Uh, but I haven't seen anything too alarming so far. Um, well, let's, let, before we can talk about Darwin in London, I think we need to first put him in, into some biographical context and start at the beginning. So in the beginning, Charles Darwin was born in 1809 in this house, the Mount in Shrewsbury, in the middle of England, to a very wealthy family. His father was a physician. And at a young age, in 1825, he was sent to study medicine in Edinburgh for two years. But he didn't much like the study of medicine. He couldn't bear the sight of blood or, or the sight of suffering. So he, uh, his father proposed instead that he become a clergyman. And in order to become a clergyman in the Church of England, you had to get a BA degree from an English university. So Edinburgh was out and Cambridge was in. Hooray! This is Christ College, where Darwin was a student between 1828 and 1831. And he did not study theology there, as is very often repeated. He was registered for an ordinary BA degree. Uh, after receiving his BA degree, he could have undertaken divinity training, but he never did that. Uh, oh, and one of the other things I've been lucky enough to be involved with this year is the restoration of Darwin's actual rooms at Christ. I've just brought a sneak peek with me today. This is what they look like today. And they're open to the public uh, for this year only. So if you're interested in Darwin, I strongly encourage you to have a look. Now, instead of undertaking divinity training, Darwin instead went on the voyage of the Beagle, which sailed around the world on a su surveying voyage, but spent most of its time in the southern half of South America. And Darwin spent most, about 70% of the voyage on land, uh, investigating the geology and zoology of the countries visited. And when he was doing this, he had one of these... 15 pocket field notebooks with him. There, this is one of the books that I'm bringing out later this year. This is the most famous one, which is not actually a field notebook. It's called the Red Notebook. And the interesting thing about the Red Notebook is it's brown. <laughs> That's a mystery for somebody to figure out uh, in the future. Now, m mostly Darwin was a geologist during the voyage of the Beagle. And these notebooks contain uh, a rich collection of geological sketches. But Darwin was also notoriously uh, not very artistic. Uh, he couldn't draw very well. And what I'm about to show you is something you will have never seen before. It is the only known self-portrait of Charles Darwin. 
and it's in one of these notebooks. And this is it. There he is. <laughs> That's Darwin as a stick man. On, uh, this is on the cliffs of St. Helena in, in the Atlantic Ocean, and he noticed that the air around him was completely still and motionless, but just beyond the cliff, over the sea, a seabird was struggling against strong winds, and he, he couldn't see how the, the wind wasn't... There was no wind. And only when he stuck his arm out over the cliff did he feel a strong updraft, and so he noted this down and drew this sketch to record it to himself, gale of wind to hand, not to man. And so he's drawn the wind, but unfortunately he got the scale wrong, so he had to slightly stretch his arm out <laughs> in order to get it out over the coast. Now, historians have known for many years that Darwin, of course, the, the most famous part of the Voyage of the Beagle, is the uh, Galapagos, but we've known for over 20 years now that Darwin didn't have a eureka moment in the Galapagos Islands and, aha, suddenly come up with evolution on the spot. No, instead it was, uh, it was after he came back home that he started to come up with his theory. First, he went to Cambridge, where he lived for three months, because all of his, all of his collections had been sent to London, uh, to Cambridge, and were kept there by Professor Henslow until his return. And Darwin worked through the collections and started to prepare the uh, book now known as The Voyage of the Beagle. But unfortunately, uh, it was just essential that he had to travel to London very often because that's where the scientific institutions and experts were who were studying and work working on his collections and sorting them through. So Darwin realized that he had to move to London. So in March 1837... He had to move to London to be closer to these specialists and the societies discussing his collections, particularly the zoological and geological societies. And he would live here for five years. But he wasn't particularly keen on it. Just after the move, he wrote to his cousin, William Darwin Fox, It is a sorrowful, but I fear, too certain truth that no place is at all equal for aiding one in natural history pursuits to this odious, dirty, smoky town where one can never get, get a glimpse at all of that which is best worth seeing in nature. And this is a page from his uh, pocket diary, in which he recorded all, what he was working on, written in London. And the first line there says, In July, open first notebook on transmutation of species have been greatly struck from about month of previous March on character of South American fossils and species on Galapagos Archipelago. Now, it's a very famous passage. And, of course, it's the most famous thing Darwin did in London, was coming up with his theory. Um, as he recalled in his autobiography, in, in July I opened my first notebook for facts in relation to the origin of species, about which I had long reflected and never ceased working on for the next 20 years. During these two, first two years in London, I also went a, a little into society and acted as one of the honorary secretaries of the Geological Society, and I saw a great deal of Charles Lyell. And after years, Darwin was asked, what inspired you to come up with your theory? And in contrast to the, the modern legend that the Galapagos did it, Darwin always gave a list of three things. Uh, firstly, oops, I forgot to show you the sketch of his... Uh, theory in his notebook. Firstly, fossils. The relationship between the fossil and living things in South America. This struck him immediately, that he, he found the remains of extinct creatures that were unknown anywhere else in the world that were immediately, immediately struck him that they resembled things that live today only in South America. 
That was very puzzling. Why should that be? This is one case. The, the armor of the glyptodon reminded him of the bony plating of the modern armadillos. Secondly, geographical distribution. As he moved southwards down the continent of South America, he would notice that the range of one species would end and the range of a similar, almost cousin or allied species would begin. Why, why should there be this spatial relationship? It, the environment didn't seem to have caused it. He couldn't understand that. This is the most famous example, uh, the South American rayas. But actually, there were many other examples that, that Darwin discovered. Again, he didn't hit on a solution. They were puzzles that, that got him thinking. And only thirdly were the creatures on the Galapagos and their relationship to those on the South American mainland. And more curiously, why there were different varieties on different islands. And as he was told by the ornithologist John Gould once he arrived in London, different species, something that Darwin didn't know when he was in the Galapagos. In fact, the now famous Darwin's finches, Darwin didn't even know that most of them were finches. When he was in the Galapagos Islands, he thought they were loads of different kinds of birds. So in fact, they should be called London's finches because it's only when Darwin gets back to London that he's told uh, the, the, this crucial information. Well, in January 1839, oops, I've, oh, I've skipped a slide. Well, there was supposed to be a picture of his, uh, uh, his wife, Emma, but I've, I've skipped her. Now, he, he married Emma, Emma Wedgwood, his first cousin, in January, and uh, he clearly told her about his incipient, incipient uh, theory of evolution. And indeed, it's clear that he told many others. This is a line from the sixth and final edition of The Order of Species, published in 1872, in which Darwin is trying to defend himself against the rather annoying criticism that, oh, why do you keep going on about in this book that uh, naturalists don't believe in evolution? We all do. You're, you're exaggerating your originality. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not true. In the, in, when I first published this, the rest of you didn't believe in evolution. And to prove it, he says, I formally spoke to very many naturalists on the subject of evolution and never once met with any sympathetic agreement. So wh what Darwin was primarily doing in London was working on the materials from the Beagle voyage and his theory of evolution. But the theory of evolution was very much in the background, even though it's in the foreground of most people's interests about Darwin today. His first publication is this, the Journal of Researches, more often known nowadays as the Voyage of the Beagle. This is the first edition published in 1839. It was based on the diary that he kept throughout the Voyage of the Beagle. But mostly he, he published more serious scientific works. Well, there's Emma. Her ghost is hopping around. Um, th this is the five volumes of the Zoology of the Voyage of the Beagle, published between 1838 and 1843. Each volume was written by a different expert on a different section of Darwin's collection. But Darwin superintended and edited and contributed to all of them. The first volume was by Richard Owen on the fossil mammalia gathered during the voyage of the Beagle. The second one was on mammals. The third was on birds. The next one was on fish. And the last one was on uh, reptiles and amphibians. But Darwin also attended many meetings and contributed to uh, many discussions during his time in London because it was a particularly social time in his scientific career. He was constantly meeting other naturalists, discussing his ideas, and particularly his, his collections. 
He then went on to write and publish between 1842 and 1846 three volumes on the geology of the Voyage of the Beagle, all written by himself, and each one of them a, a, a major contribution to the geology of the day. And these made a, a great name for, for Darwin as a geologist. The first volume was on his now famous theory of coral reefs, um, which to this day we, is still considered to be correct that the source of coral reefs is from the subsidence of the land underneath what was originally an island ringed with a, a fringing coral reef, and as the land disappeared underneath the waves, all that remained was an ever-upward-growing ring of coral. The next volume was on volcanic islands, in which Darwin overturned the then-current theories on the formation of volcanic islands. The third volume was on the geology of South America. Now I'm going to talk about a number of scientific papers that Darwin published, uh, scientific talks that he gave in London, which then became scientific papers. And these give, I think, a, a good overview. And of course, I can't mention all of them because Darwin published many papers during this time. But I think they give a good flavor of what Darwin was actually doing during his time in London and what was actually occupying his mind and what people who knew Darwin were aware of what he was doing. So at the end of May, 1837, not, not long after moving to London, he gave a paper to the Geological Society called On Certain Areas of Elevation and Subsidence in the Pacific and Indian Oceans as Deduced from the Study of Coral Formations. And this was connected with his Coral Reef book. And the conclusions to this paper are, are quite dramatic and sweeping. I'll just read Darwin's summary of his findings in this paper. First, that the linear spaces of great extent of, on the, of the globe are undergoing movements of an astonishing uniformity and that the bands of elevation and subsidence alternate. Two, that the points of volcanic eruption all fall on the areas of global elevation. Three, that certain coral formations acting as monuments over subsided land, the geographical distribution of organic beings as consequent on geological changes as laid down by Mr. Lyle, is elucidated by the discovery of former centers whence the germs could be disseminated. And fourthly, that some degree of light might thus be thrown on the question whether certain groups of living beings peculiar to small spots are the remnants of a, large, a former large population or a new one springing into existence. Now this is, as far as we know, Darwin's first public statement about his interest in the origin of species. And that's one year after the return of the voyage of the Beagle, and right when he's simply coming up with the very beginnings of his theory of evolution. A couple of years later, he published his famous Glen Roy paper, about which he gets uh, a lot of stick nowadays, because this is one of his big mistakes. Darwin imagined that the so-called parallel roads of Glen Roy were the result of the same kinds of geological forces he had studied and elucidated so brilliantly in South America and in, uh, across the Pacific, namely the repeated subsidence and elevation of the surface of the land. So Darwin argued that these parallel ridges or roads had sunk over 1,000 feet under the sea at successive periods and that these lines were the remains of marine beaches. And this paper was published in 1839. Unfortunately, uh, some decades later, it was, it was proved that actually the, these were the results of 
glacial lakes, that the valleys had been blocked up by glaciers. At the time Darwin was writing, this was an unimaginable power or force. And Darwin later regretted that he had relied on, on the principle of exclusion, that because no other cause could be seen to be responsible, it must therefore be the one he was familiar with. The following year, he published a paper on <coughs> volcanic phenomena. Now, one of the most, this is clearly one of the most important geological papers Darwin ever published. In it, he argued for the progressive, long-term changes happening in the geology of South America were due to incremental, non-catastrophic causes, and that there was a strong correlation between volcanic eruptions and earthquakes. Now, it's a very Lyleian paper showing that Darwin had not only adopted the views of his great geological mentor, Charles Lyell, but that he had uh, in, made far more progress in the study of the geology of South America than any, any previous geologist. In the same year, he published this curious little paper on the formation of mold, or what, what we would say on the formation of soil. And Darwin showed in this, in this brief paper that, um, again, the formation of soil was the, result, uh, was, was the result of very small, minute actions reiterated over a long period of time. As he wrote in the paper, although the conclusion may at first appear startling, it will be difficult to deny the prob probability that every particle of earth forming the bed from which the, the turf in an old uh, field springs, all of it has passed through the intestines of worms. And he went on to show that the worms not only aerated the soil, but also that they were actually pushing the surface of the land upwards, millimeter at a time. And he got down on his hands and knees and observed that between the leaves of the grass in the field he was investigating, little worm castings were spread across the surface of the ground. There wasn't two square inches without one these little worm castings, which was just pushed up a little bit. And Darwin realized that by the reiteration of these little worm castings being pushed up, again and again and again, that they constantly elevated the soil that was small enough to pass through the guts of a worm only that much higher up, and the rain would then settle it down a bit. And hence, pebbles and other objects that weren't too large or too deep settled down beneath them. And this was one of the causes for the, the uh, submerge, submergence of archaeological remains. But all of this, of course, became the theme of Darwin's last book over 40 years after this. Now, in 1841, he read this, this paper to the, um, uh, sorry, I made another mistake on my slides. In 1841, he, he published this paper on a remarkable bar of sandstone in Brazil. And again, he had a, a, re a reiterative process to explain part of this story, which was, why was this remarkable bar of sandstone, this is a cross-section of it, why wasn't it eroded by the sea? long ago. Surely it should have been. And Darwin believed that the accretion of marine organisms constantly growing on the front of this uh, sandbar were, were actually protecting it from the erosion of the sea so that they were taking the beating and, and being eroded themselves but growing back at a, a, a sufficient rate to stop the erosion of the sandbar, which is a, a similar theory to his uh, solution to the, the coral reef problem which is the combination of geological and zoological forces, small changes reiterated over a long time producing a great effect, in this case a mile-long uh, 
bar of sandstone that didn't, didn't go away, even though it, it presumably should have. Well, in 1841, Darwin wrote a, a paper to the Geological Society in which he defended his and Lyell's view that floating ice transported boulders far from their native formations rather than, uh, in a, this was in opposition to Louis Agassiz's recent glacier theory, that glaciers were pushing boulders around, and that's how isolated boulders ended up far away from their native formations. And Darwin was actually quite enamored with this idea of floating ice, and he developed a number of theories which didn't stand the test of time to explain, to, to stick by his, his uh, favorite theory that floating ice must be responsible. And one of the papers was about a, a boulder that had been seen in an iceberg out at sea. This is absolutely delighted Darwin because finally someone had actually seen what he had been uh, speculating about. In another instance, he tried to counteract Agassiz's description of parallel scratches in rocks as being the result of the slow motion of glaciers over the landscape. Darwin thought, well, this too could also be explained by floating icebergs. And he combined his other geological theories with the icebergs to put together this theory, which was that the scratches could have been caused by the icebergs moving back and forth in the sea, pelted by the waves. And if the land were elevated or subsided, an additional series of parallel lines would also be created. So the land would go up, and there'd be more scratches up, etc. thus giving the identical appearance to what Agassiz said you would get from glaciers streaking across the landscape and creating these parallel lines. It's just another example uh, that Darwin didn't always get it right and often wouldn't uh, give up on, on, on a pet theory uh, once he'd set his mind to it. Now, this is another paper that Darwin published in 1842 on the distribution of erratic boulders. Uh, again, trying to promote his iceberg theory. Now, in addition to all of these papers on geology, Darwin spoke at uh, numerous scientific societies in, in London and published other contributions on, on other things that he had collected on the Voyage of the Beagle, including birds, insects, and spiders, uh, papers on the, the recent elevation of Chile and the, and the proof that Ch uh, the coast of Chile had been elevated recently, fossil mammals, Pacific Island plants, edible fungi from uh, South America, signing a petition for the purchase of fossils by the British Museum, and uh, also signing a, a petition and contributing to a list of questions on human races sent out as a, called a, a questionnaire on anthropology. And then, of course, he wrote his first of many letters to the Gardener's Chronicle in 1841. And this one was on humblebees. And for, for many decades, Darwin kept up his, his interest in and his, his contributions to, uh, to this delightful, and as some people have called it, Darwin's favorite periodical. So this is what Darwin is working on in the foreground during his time in London. This is Darwin's public science. But all the while in the background, he's working on his theory of evolution. He's reading, he's talking to people, he's taking notes, and he continues working on it even after he leaves London. So by 1842, Darwin decides he's ready to write up a sort of rough sketch of his theory uh, in just about... 20 pages in pencil. And this he leaves for another couple of years. He finishes a couple more of these books on geology. And in 
And during a gap in one of them, after he sent it to the publisher, he writes up a longer version of his theory in 230 pages. But again, it's a rough draft. He doesn't have any of his notes with him. He has none of his books. And it's something not intended for publication. Uh, yet, in recent years, it's very often demanded, well, why didn't he publish that? It's really good, actually. Uh, well, Darwin himself never considered that very, very good, or he never considered it publishable. And one, one part of the confusion on this issue is that Darwin wrote a letter to his wife, Emma, saying, I've just finished this rough sketch of my species theory, and uh, I think it's very important, and if something should happen to me, etc., etc. Well, the, the version one, u one usually hears of this story is that Darwin said, when I die, publish this, or I would rather be dead than publish this, or some such rendition. But actually, this memo to his wife doesn't say that at all. What it says is, this is the rough sketch of my theory. It's very important, but it's not publishable. And in order to make it publishable, a lot more work is needed. So please devote as much as 500 pounds to uh, interest a qualified editor to do all the work necessary of putting this into a publishable condition. And in order to do that, he will need all of my books and all of my notes because this needs considerable enlargement and work. And then he provided a list of various people he thought were qualified, all of whom were not evolutionists, but all of whom knew Darwin believed in evolution. Only if all of those things failed, he said, then have it published. But with a note saying this was never intended to be published in its current condition. And many years afterwards, when Darwin was in the midst of writing up his great species book, he was about halfway through what w would have been a, a three-volume Victorian table crusher, full of footnotes and facts. He gets the surprise letter from Alfred Russell Wallace, outlining a, a remarkably similar theory. And they publish a joint, uh, publish, uh, two papers by the two men are published for them in the Journal of the Linnaean Society in 1858. Then Darwin is urged by his friends, oh, come on, we know the outline now. Can you just give us an overview of your theory in the meantime? Because you, your, your big book, it's still years away. We can't wait. Please, give us an overview. So Darwin doesn't go back and use that 1844 sketch. He still considers it unpublishable. So instead of publishing it, he spends 13 grueling months writing The Origin of Species which was published in 1859. And on the first page, Darwin told his readers the story of writing this book. He says, on, on the voyage of HMS Beagle as naturalist, I was much struck by what he had, I had seen in South America, etc. And then on my return home, it occurred to me that by collecting facts, etc., on this subject, something could be made up on this. And so in 1837, I opened a notebook on the subject, which we now know, yep, that's true, he did. And then he goes on to say that after a few years, he speculated on this, i.e., he wrote the 20-page document in 1842, and this I enlarged into a, a, a larger sketch or draft in 1844. And from that day to the present, I have steadily pursued the same object. So Darwin told his readers on the first page of The Origin of Species, I thought of this a long time ago. That's probably to stake out his priority. Why not? Mr. Wallace is just published a joint paper with him. I started working on this 20 years ago, and I prepared various drafts of it. And from that period to the present day, I'm still working on it. And in fact, then he goes on to say at the end of the first page, but my big book on this subject still isn't finished, and it will be a few years before it is. 
Therefore, in the meantime, I'm providing you with this overview, an overview with no footnotes. So it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if Wallace hadn't written Darwin that, that letter. Now, it's often claimed that if Wallace hadn't sent that letter to Darwin, he never would have published. But I think that's nonsense. He's already halfway through a very big book on the subject. He's devoted himself full-time to writing this. He's writing chapter after chapter after chapter. And now, if you consider what would have happened if the letter from Wallace didn't arrive and Darwin had continued working at the same rate that he had been working for the last few years and on the number of subjects that he eventually covered in The Origin of Species, you can project forwards how long Darwin would have taken to complete that book and you can, examine, you can consider the, the estimate that Darwin gives on the first page of The Origin, which he says it would take me two or three more years to finish the big book, which he's now taken leave of for 13 months. Anyway, so if you do both of these, you get the same s conclusion, which is that Darwin would have published his theory of evolution around 1860 or 1861. So rather than saying, uh, oh, if it weren't for Wallace, Darwin never would have published, no. Uh, Wallace made a difference of a couple of years, which is a rather different version of events, I think, than, than the usual one. So Darwin, after 1842, he left London, although he did return on numerous occasions. He came to stay with his brother. He came for scientific meetings. And uh, a couple of occasions, he and his ever-growing family came and rented a house to stay in London for a holiday, to see friends and, and relatives, visit museums. And it, but it was always down, down village in Kent that remained his home for, for the rest of his life. And he died in... He died there in 1882, and he always believed he would be buried in the churchyard there. But uh, as we heard already this morning, that didn't work out. And uh, various measures were put in motion to bring the great man's remains back to London. And they were interred in Westminster Abbey in April 1882, where they remain to this day. So although Darwin only lived five consecutive years in London and stayed a few odd weeks and months here, at various other times of his life. London was obviously a crucial place in his life. I would, of course, also argue that Cambridge was a crucial part of his life as well. Uh, not that I'm biased. <laughs> but Cambridge and London are both uh, very fundamental places for Darwin because he undergoes great biographical and scientific transformations in his thinking and in his scientific contacts. And we'll be hearing later from Jim Endersby about the scientific colleagues, the friends and foes that Darwin had in London. Because London was really the, the scientific epicenter of Victorian Britain. And that's why Darwin wanted to be here. He had to be here in the first place for his beagle collections, his mountains of thousands upon thousands of specimens. Here were the experts who alone could identify what he had found and tell him what he had found. He didn't know that they, the finches on the Galapagos were all finches, etc. How could he have known indeed? Because without access to a worldwide collection on the Galapagos Islands, all he knew was that he had gone to these islands and found some finches or various birds, unlike those he had seen in South America. Without a worldwide collection, it wasn't possible for Darwin to establish what John Gould later established, which was these species exist nowhere else, only on the Galapagos. Now, Darwin suspected this when it, at the time, but it was only when he got back to London that the expertise and the collections and the museums were here that made this possible. And similarly with the identification of the fossils that he had collected when Richard Owen identified these. So the big three that I mentioned earlier on that were behind the, the big three uh, 
types of evidence that kick-started Darwin into thinking about evolution and to come up with this theory of descent with modification, all of them depended, in fact, on his time in London. The fossils had to be identified here. Only here did Darwin, was Darwin told, yes, well, this, this creature that you found that you had no idea what it was, it, at first he was told this was an extinct giant llama, although Richard Owen changed his mind on that. But that, that at first got Darwin thinking, aha, an extinct llama found only where llamas exist today. Curious puzzle. Then the, the distribution of modern species, living species, the rares. Only when Darwin got back to London did John Gould identify the second type, the second variety of a rare as a second species. And similarly with the Galapagos flora and fauna. It was only when he got back home that other experts were able to identify for him what these things are. What he did notice in the Galapagos Islands were that the mockingbirds were actually different on different islands. This he actually noted at the time and did write down in his notes while he was there. But uh, again, we still have no evidence that this caused any kind of eureka moment. He just noticed that there were different mockingbirds on different islands. It was over a year after this, after the trip to the Galapagos, as the beagle is returning home, after their stop in South Africa, Darwin was writing up condensed and clearly written sets of notes to go with each of his collections because the collections, the fossils, the birds, the reptiles, etc., would all be given to a different expert once he got home to identify. And to go with that, each one of these would be a set of notes corresponding, telling them where he collected them, what colors they were, and that sort of thing. And it's in that document for the birds, Darwin's ornithological notes, that we have the first written evidence of Darwin's doubting about the stability of species. And it was in reference to the mockingbirds. But, but an, and it's a very a widely quoted passage where Darwin says that uh, if these are indeed different varieties on different islands, such facts uh, would make the study of archipelagos very interesting because such facts, if true, would undermine the stability of species. Well, the interesting thing about that, that lovely quote is that it's written in a document intended to be given to someone else. It's not a private document, and indeed was given to someone else. So after Darwin's death in 1882, uh, an unprecedented number of obituaries and other publications appeared summarizing his life, starting for the first time to tell the story of Charles Darwin's life. Who was Charles Darwin? What, what has he done? And the amazing thing about these is how consistent they are, despite the fact that they were written by many different people around the world in many different languages before the advent of standard Darwin biographies. So the people who wrote these didn't have common sources to go to on this, the life of Charles Darwin. They relied on their own experience because they, had, they were Darwin's contemporaries. They had lived through Darwin's life. They had witnessed the publication of his books. They had presumably read some of them. Uh, so these people all based their, their writings on their own experiences. And the amazing thing is that he's described in almost all of them as a naturalist without parallel who had ushered in uh, a revolution, is the word they very often use in these obituaries, a revolution in our understanding of the world, that Darwin has changed the world forever. And he was compared to Newton or, or, or etc. And the, the, the thing that's sadly forgotten in the, in the story of Darwin nowadays is that what happened after the origin of species wasn't that we had a great conflict of science and religion. We now know that that's, that's uh, another myth. 
But the, within 20 years of the publication of The Origin of Species, the debate was basically over. The international scientific community had accepted Darwin was right, and evolution was a fact. Natural selection was still not always accepted, although I think it was more widely accepted than we, than we often hear, but that remains to be seen. So Darwin's contemporaries, having experienced the, the extraordinary career of this young man who came back from the Voyage of the Beagle, who filled these mu our museums with wonderful collections, who gave extraordinary papers, who made a, a great reputation for himself as an amiable and intelligent young man, publishing on a huge range of subjects, then retired off at a young age to London to raise his family and to continue to churn out uh, a range of promising books. And then, and then he published The Origin of Species. So, of course, unlike today, where most people only remember Darwin for The Origin of Species, for his contemporaries, he was a, a much broader man who published on a much broader range of, of theories. So the short answer to the question, what was Darwin doing in London, would be mostly working very hard at his scientific pursuits and, po and possibly studying a wider range of subjects than uh, any other comparable period in his life. And if you'd like to find out more about Mr. Darwin, you can visit his new website, which contains his complete <laughs> publications. Thank you very much.